Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WAB in Atlanta, welcome to this special edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, it marks one year since the killing of Ahmaud Arbery. I lost somebody very important to me, somebody I love dearly. The 25-year-old black man, Ahmaud Arbery, shot to death while jogging in a Glenn County, Georgia neighborhood. It would be months before cell phone video footage revealed a lot more. This hour, in partnership with the Buried Truths podcast, I'll be joined by Hank Klibanoff, and we'll hear from guests as they recall, recap, and offer insight into a year later on the killing of Ahmaud Arbery. But as we always do, here's a daily update on the coronavirus pandemic. Now, the U.S., Grimly officially surpassed a half million reported coronavirus-related deaths. In an interview with Reuters, Chief Medical Advisor to the White House, Dr. Anthony Fauci, stated these deaths were preventable. At the end of the day, everybody got hit really badly. I mean, if you look at even the ones that thought they were doing so great, like Germany and the U.K. and the E.U., as it turns out, everybody had a problem. However, a big however... That does not explain how a rich and sophisticated country can have the most percentage of deaths and be the hardest hit country in the world. That, I believe, should not have happened. Dr. Fauci and other public health officials agree that the actual number of deaths is likely higher than those that are confirmed. Now here in Georgia, the state's COVID-19 death stands at 14,689. 56 deaths were recorded yesterday. Meanwhile, the number of new cases is trending downward. The state has confirmed 806,119 cases in total, and more than 1,300 cases were confirmed just yesterday. Now, we're also nearing 55,000 total recorded hospitalizations. As always, we get our information from the Georgia Department of Public Health. Now, this is the same week all this information is coming to us because the state is opening four new mass COVID-19 vaccination sites. These are located in Albany, Macon, Habersham County, and at the Delta Flight Museum in Hapeville. Now, eligible Georgians can reserve an appointment time online. Pay attention to this website at myvaccinegeorgia.com. That's myvaccinegeorgia.com. In other news, I told you yesterday more folks would probably enter into one of the races for city government. Well, here's another one. While the challenges ahead of us are great, there's nothing wrong with Atlanta that can't be solved by what's right with Atlanta. And one thing I know for sure is that only together we will rise. My name is Courtney English, and I'm running to be your Atlanta City Council president. And that is the former Atlanta Public School Board Chair, Courtney English, making the announcement in a video this morning. Now, yesterday, 
Councilman Renatlin Archibald also said that she's going to be in the race. So there you go. There's two. And also remember now, Atlanta current Atlanta City Council President Felicia Moore announced that she is running for mayor. Coming up next, our special program as we look back on a year, a year to the date that Ahmaud Arbery was killed. I'll be joined by Emory University and award-winning veteran journalist and friend, Professor, I guess you call him, Hank Klibanoff. He joins me. Plus, we'll hear from Paige Pate and Gerald Griggs. All that's coming up in just a moment. This is Closer Look. wake-up call for America. They must wake up and see what is happening to our people. I went to his room and I told him that I was leaving. I'll be back in the next couple of days and I love you. And his last words to me was, I love you too. I need to ask you about that quote. Can you please articulate for the court what Mr. Bryan said he heard Travis McMichael say prior to police arriving and after the fatal shooting? Yes, um, Mr. Bryan said that after the shooting took place, before police arrival, while Mr. Aubrey was on the ground, that he heard Travis Michael make the statement. Agents from the Georgia Bureau of Investigation effectuated an arrest on two individuals, Greg and Travis McMichaels, charging them with both felony murder and aggravated assault in regards uh, to the killing of Ahmaud Arbery back in February uh, of 2020 here in Glenn County. And it's hard. My days are getting harder because Amon's never coming home. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. He had a couple of nicknames, Maud and Quez. Ahmad Marquez Arbery, pretty good athlete, the youngest of three children. When he played football, he wore the number 21. Now, for those that are football fans, you know, I, I, you can argue with me, but the best to ever wear that number was probably Deion Sanders. Ahmad was quite the athlete, and he wore that football jersey number. That was also the number his older brother, Marcus Jr., wore. A year ago on this day, February 23, 2020, Ahmad Aubrey did something he had been doing a lot, running. It was a sunny Sunday morning. Aubrey's mother, Wanda Cooper-Jones, recalled the last time she spoke with her son. As she prepared to go out of town, Ms. Cooper-Jones popped into her son's room the Tuesday before he was killed. It was early that morning. I went to his room, still lying in bed. Um, and I went to his room and I told him that I was leaving. I'll be back in the next couple of days, and I love you. And his last words to me was, I love you too. 
That clip from May 15th of last year as Miss Cooper Jones was appearing on a segment with Dr. Phil. Ahmaud Arbery was shot and killed after being chased by three white men. Those men, Gregory McMichael, his son Travis McMichael, and William Roddy Bryan Jr. eventually would be charged. We'll have more about where that case is now in just a moment. But on this special edition of Closer Look, our guests joining the program throughout the hour, well, we'll recall, recap, and offer insight, as it is exactly one year to this date, on the killing of Ahmaud Arbery. And joining me on today's broadcast from Emory University, award-winning veteran journalist, we'll call him Professor Hank Klibanoff, also director of the Georgia Civil Rights Cold Cases Project, and host of WAB's Peabody Award-honored Buried Truths podcast. The latest season is about the killing of Ahmaud Arbery. Hank, as always, I appreciate you taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good to see you. Thank you, Rose. It's terrific to see you, too, and to be with you. And for those that are concerned, we are distanced in our studio, so everybody's safe. Um, Hank, it's, it's, it's been a year. Um, in a year 2020 like no other in our nation's scene, not only because of the pandemic, but Aubrey's killing, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, here in Atlanta, Rayshard Brooks, each with different circumstances, Hank, but a familiar question and something you always tackle in the podcast, did they have to die? How do you reflect on this last year as it relates to this case? I could think the first thing that comes to my mind is that for all but a few of us on this earth, this has been with us for nine months because the first three months, 74 days, whatever, you know, were, uh, the story was not known. Mm-hmm. No one really knew about it. It was a very small <clears throat> item in the news, and that was it. But for the Ahmad Arbery family, and for his close, close, close circle of friends, this has been a horrific year. And they are the ones who would be most likely to ask the question, did he have to die? Mm -hmm. And then as that circle of people grows who now know about it, everyone should be asking the question, did he have to die? And the answer is absolutely not. There is no reason for him not to be with us today. Mm -hmm. And people will speculate in different ways about, and people will have different opinions about why he died. They will ask, well, had he been white, would he have died? You know, these are all good questions. Um, Hank, for those that may not be familiar, and and we hope that folks will become familiar if they're not, let's recap what Barry Truths with this amazing storytelling podcast is all about. Well, Barry Truths began right here at WABE. I was teaching the course at Emory University, the Georgia Civil Rights Cold Cases class. And it's something that I had been doing before I came to Emory with journalists across the South and Mississippi and Louisiana and Alabama, examining unpunished racially motivated killings that took place. And you notice I call them killings, not Mm -hmm. murders, but they are murders, but they've never been adjudicated as murders, you know, Mm -hmm. so the journalist in me gets awfully prudish about that. I feel the same way. Right, right. So, um, and then when I came to Emory, that was part of my proposal for, you know, the position I was seeking at Emory was that I would love to teach history in this hands-on investigative way. Hmm. 
and to look at these unpunished racially motivated killings in Georgia history. And um, so up until, you know, May of 2020, that's the kind of case I was examining, cases that fell between the end of World War II and 1968, 1970. So you saw Isaiah Nixon that we did a podcast on, A.C. Hall, right? So why Ahmaud Arbery? Because he, uh, first, it happened. Uh, I will tell you, when um, I was down in Albany working on what was going to be season three, uh, and then COVID broke out there in a very big way, and I could not stay there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I certainly wasn't going to take my students there. Uh, and I was trying to figure out what would be next when the Arbery story breaks in May publicly. And it everything I learned, I said, wait, this just reminds me of everything we've been studying for in my classes since 2011. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, this is history repeating itself and again and again. So, so Hank... In telling the story of Isaiah Nixon, a father of six, killed in 1948, uh, I think Montgomery County, Georgia. A.C. Hall, black teenager, who was, I'm, I'm using these air quotes, identified as a gun thief in 1962, gunned down in Macon, Georgia. Ahmaud Arbery. And although decades in between these killings, but several familiar optics, and one being at the core of this, whether folks agree with it or not, Probably race, not probably racism. As you started to, you and your students started to conceptualize the Ahmaud Arbery case here. Where did you begin? Because you do more than just examine the mm-hmm. the current. Mm-hmm. You went way back to tell the the story of this area. Mm-hmm. Well, as you know, I one of our watchwords of. Cold Cases Project and Barry Truce is um, we're not looking at who done it, we're looking at why. Because mm-hmm. uh, in most cases, we already know who done it. And we know that in the Ahmaud Arbery case. There's no dispute mm-hmm. who the three people are and what they did. Okay. Um, it's the why. And so we go at it from that wider angle that quickly narrows. Um, and the more. I learned about Glenn County, where this takes place, and the history of it. The more, I, I, and the Glenn County Police Department, mm-hmm. which had just this terrible record of of abusive behavior by its police officers, much of it indulged by law enforcement, other and and prosecutorial law enforcement, the district attorney's office. Even though she did at one point before her term ended bring some indictments against some police officers, but not for some of the more egregious things that had happened there. And I just thought, you know, this is, there's a rich, rich history. I just, one of my students came in with a little detail looking at uh, Glenn County where, and, you know, it was, first of all, it was one of the first seven counties in Georgia. Mm -hmm. It goes way, way back Mm -hmm. to the origins of Georgia. And she, you know, 1777 is when (laughs) that was formed. And Early in the 1800s, as it depends totally on the enslavement of people who were brought here against their will, the population of Glenn County was 85% African-American and 15% white. It had the greatest disparity of any county in, in the state, black over white. By 19, I mean, by 2020, when we 
did this podcast, it had shifted radically to 72% white. And you think, wow, that doesn't happen in very many counties, that it swings that widely, except for one thing, slavery. Mm -hmm. And um, it explains so much about the, 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 the passage of time and yet the, the stillness of time. Mm. I want to shift for a moment because I want to bring in to the conversation criminal defense attorney and WAB legal analyst Paige Pate, who's also has an office down in that area. Paige, welcome to this special edition. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks, Rose. Glad to have you and Hank along here. Uh, let's for a moment recap, I guess, the legal path leading up to now. On May 7th of last year, the GBI arrested Gregory McMichael, 64, Travis McMichael, his son, 34, for the death of Ahmaud Arbery. Now, Paige, they were both charged with murder and aggravated assault, correct? That's right. Now, Paige, and I actually had a listener a while back who said, bring him back because I have a question. And we talked about right. this, but each state is different. And so for our listeners, explain these charges. And, and the listener wanted to know why not first degree or second degree murder? Well, Rose, I think the simple answer is felony murder is much easier to prove. All the state has to do is show that the person who's charged with murder was committing some sort of violent felony act and somebody died. So in this case, the state has alleged that the McMichaels were assaulting Mr. Arbery by chasing him around with the car and ultimately pointing firearms at him. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, or during the course of that assault, uh, he was shot and killed. Now, you can certainly charge someone with malice murder under this set of facts, but why take on that obligation of having to prove an intent to kill when you can get the same exact punishment, life in prison, mm -hmm. uh, with a felony murder charge? So I think that's why they decided to indict the case the way they did. And then shortly thereafter, on May 21st, William Roddy Bryant, age 50, arrested, charged, felony murder and criminal attempt to commit false imprisonment. In these charges, explain that page for our listeners? Well, again, the felony murder charge is based on Mr. Bryant's alleged felony, which is uh, trying to falsely imprison Ahmad by chasing him around with his truck. Uh, you know, the, the whole scene w was just a, a, a compilation of crime upon crime upon crime. Mm -hmm. I think it was somewhat difficult for the district attorney's office to try to streamline it into one solid case that's going to make sense to a jury. Because the worst thing you can do in a case like this, where everyone believes these people did something horribly wrong, the worst thing you can do is overcharge them and, mm -hmm. and develop maybe some sort of compromise or sympathy on behalf of the jury, which does not belong in this case. So I think the DA's office has taken the right approach by charging them only with what they can clearly prove in court. And I also want to give an update for our listeners because all are still in jail. No bond has been granted. It's been a year now. Um, through your lens, not unusual, huh? Not unusual in a murder case. Um, I, I do believe, though, that uh, given the background of the individuals who were charged, I, I don't think they had any criminal history or certainly no significant criminal history. Uh, the fact that the charges were made at the time uh, when there was an ongoing pandemic in the country, there have been zero jury trials in Glenn County uh, for over a year. I'm right now, as we're talking, looking at the Glenn County Courthouse. And 
you know, there's not much going on there. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was possible, given the fact that there was no trial date in sight, that the judge may consider letting these folks out on bond. Uh, but obviously, the judge decided not to do that, and they remain here in jail. And Paige, we should note also that uh, after some some maneuvering and also some protesting, that the case was moved to another county. Correct? Um, not entirely. The case remains pending in Glenn County, although the judge is from Chatham County in Savannah. So, for all of the proceedings relating to this case, he comes over to Glenn County. Um, the DA, of course, is out of Cobb County um, because of a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. The local DA here couldn't handle the case or mishandled the case. It went to a second DA. It went to a third DA. Uh, and then eventually the attorney general moved it to the district attorney of Cobb County. But it is important that the case still remains in Glenn County. It's possible one or both sides could ask for a change of venue, move it to a different county for trial. But as of now, it's going to be tried in the courthouse right across the street from my office. And as Hank pointed out, and I'll bring Hank into the conversation, you know, what they were able to reveal, Hank's students, you know, the the history and the pattern of law enforcement in Glenn County. Hank, what did you all take that a little bit further for us? What did your students reveal here? Well, some of it had to do, uh, we looked at some what appeared to be anomalies, um, and not even just about the case. Uh, we, I remember when we were having discussions here one day at uh, WABE with our team of students and the WABE people. The question was, you know, are there any black prosecutors in the state of Georgia? Uh, and it turns out there are, but only in the most populous Mm-hmm. cities uh you know i think there were seven out of the is it 49 districts judicial districts i can't recall but and probably a bulk of them in probably fulton or decap fulton augusta mm-hmm. yeah i think columbus but not very many you know um and and again it just goes to when you're looking at a 70 percent ratio of whites to blacks down there and, and 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 in areas that many of us have always looked upon as being somewhat enlightened i mean i think they are i think saint simon's you know has uh, a, a reputation for being relatively progressive um i mean i i think that uh brunswick same uh, so it, it was we were looking for just to try to understand what what is that area like today um and we went back and looked at the history of the families too as you as you know we mm-hmm. looked at the mcmichaels and went dug, dug back into their history and roddy bryant's history and um you're looking for context you're looking where where what what motivated the mcmichaels to immediately when they see a kid running through the neighborhood mm-hmm. say let's go get him let's go you know and grab their guns on the way and you know, it's not incriminating to say this, but, you know, we were interested to see that their families went all the way back to the Confederacy, mm-hmm. you know, and that they they fought for the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it ju- that says two things. One, they fought for the Confederacy. Two, those families, the white families, go back a long, long way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roddy Bryan's family founded the town of Baxley in Appling County, you know, which has one of the most dramatic uh, Confederate memorials of any county in the state there. Paige, let me ask you this, because based on what Hank just said, and, and you know, you, you, you've been in front of a lot of judges <laughs> as a sure. criminal That's defense not. attorney. When you can't, can the prosecutors, do they need to go back as far as what Hank is talking about? Because 
to prove motive and to prove racial, that it was racially charged? Um, yeah. Or are you just trying to prove that we know that they were responsible for Ahmad's mur- killing? But if you're trying to connect racism and it was racially motivated, how difficult is that to do? Well, Rose, I think it's important to point out that they don't need a racial motive to convict these people of murder. You know, Mm -hmm. all they need is an aggravated assault. Why they were committing the aggravated assault, it's not an element of the crime of murder. In other words, we all hear the expression, you don't need a motive to prove murder. And that's absolutely true, whether it's money, hate, racism, whatever it is. But I do think there is evidence of a racial uh, motivation here And I think that's going to come out in trial. But we don't have to go as far back uh, as Hank and his uh, folks have done. And by the way, I think they did a great job with that podcast. I've listened to every episode. Very well done, very detailed. And it spoke to the history of this place uh, as well as to this case. But I think we can look at more recent activity, social media activity, which has already been a part of this case in court. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be admissible at trial. So when you have these individuals making um, racial slurs, um, obviously demeaning people of color all throughout their conversations, then it's not a a difficult leap to say that that was somewhere in their minds as they were pursuing Ahmad through this neighborhood. The voice you hear is WABE legal analyst and criminal defense attorney Paige Pate. I'm also joined by Emory University professor Hank Klibanoff and also host of WABE's award-winning podcast, Buried Truths. When we come back, we'll continue this special edition of Closer Look. We'll talk a little bit more about the legal proceedings, and also we'll dig a little bit further into what Buried Truths has been able to reveal. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And this special edition of Closer Look continues here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. I'm joined today on this broadcast from Emory, Uni- from Emory University, veteran journalist and Professor Hank Klibanoff, also director of the Georgia Civil Rights Cold Cases Project, of course, host of WABE's Peabody Award-winning Buried Truths podcast, also joined by WABE legal analyst and criminal defense attorney who is down in the Brunswick area, Paige Pate. And Paige, real quickly, and, and Hank, some breaking news regarding this. Um, this coming from Kelly Wiley on Twitter. Ahmaud Arbery's mother has filed a federal lawsuit against the Glenn County Police Department and the first two state prosecutors on the case, Jackie Johnson and George Barnhill. Uh, Paige, I'll start with you. Your reaction to that? 
Well, um, this is the first I've heard of it. I have not read the lawsuit, uh, but I would assume uh, given the one year anniversary, this is certainly the, the time uh, to pursue the case if she's going to against not the individuals who committed the crime, but people who uh, at least some think were involved in an attempted cover up of the crime. Because, you know, watching some of the body cam videos that we've seen recently that have been released, mm-hmm. uh, and I think Hank mentioned this or referred to it, um, this case really came very close to never making it to court. Um, I don't think people realize how close the McMichaels came to completely getting away with what happened that day. And it was only through the release of the video, the public attention, the quick action, frankly, of the GBI and the attorney general's office to move this case towards prosecution. So I think perhaps this lawsuit is an attempt to hold the local police department, uh, the DA at the time, she's since been defeated. She's no longer district attorney down here. But the DA at the time and a DA in an adjoining circuit responsible for what some believe was an attempted cover-up. Mm. Hank, your reaction to hearing this? No, I think that's that's exactly right. The question, I guess, in my mind is whether a lawsuit increases the pressure on the uh, U.S. Department of Justice to move forward on its, its purported investigation into possible prosecutorial misconduct, same with the state attorney general. Both were pretty expressed dismay at the way that, um, you know, this became three-card Monty with with the prosecutors there, Mm -hmm. uh, where Jackie Johnson of Glenn County has to recuse herself because McMichael had, Greg McMichael had worked for her, and then uh, she turns it over to, directly to George Barnhill of Waycross, rather than go first to the attorney general and get him to, uh, you know, name the person to replace her when she recused herself. I think she said at one point she tried to call the attorney general and couldn't find his phone number. Um, so whatever it was, George Barnhill gets the case the same day that Ahmad Arbery is killed and by noon the next morning has declared that uh, he was guilty of burglary and that these men had the right to um, to get involved in killing him uh, and arresting him and, or trying to and that the killing was justified. Paige, when we talk about then the accountability as it relates to law enforcement, not not the not the officers, I'm talking about prosecutors here. Uh, what needs to be proved in order for accountability to be served, whatever that looks like? Yeah, that that's a complicated question given the facts of this case. I, I don't think. I don't know, frankly. I don't know what the Department of Justice's criminal investigation may have uncovered to this point. We know that they've interviewed everyone involved in the case. Uh, Hank had mentioned that that investigation uh, is ongoing, and it is as far as we know. But as is typical with the Department of Justice, they're not telling us what's happening. You know, they, they don't tell us any preliminary findings or this is what we have so far. Uh, we, we don't know what they've uncovered in that case. But to prosecute someone for federal civil rights violations, the government would have to show that there was uh, an animus here, an attempt to try to deprive these individuals of their civil rights. It's different from a state criminal case Mm -hmm. because they have to prove that additional component of a deprivation of civil rights. Um, There could also be charges relating to a violation of their oath of office, uh, to 
faithfully prosecute uh, individuals um, and, and also faithfully administer justice in their circuits, that would be more of a state offense, and it's certainly possible that could happen as well. And Paige, in order, I mean, in, in the order then, would this federal lawsuit, would that have to occur before then the criminal trial actually begins? How does that work? No, and, and that's an interesting point. Um, you know, it, it may tell us something about the federal criminal investigation because if there is an active federal criminal investigation, I would anticipate that the prosecutors in the Southern District of Georgia will try to pause this lawsuit. They will not want civil discovery to be going on concurrent with a criminal investigation. So we may find out if there's an active criminal investigation by watching what the U.S. Attorney's Office does in response to the filing of this lawsuit. Do they try to stay it, pause it, or do they simply ignore it? Paige, for our listeners who may not be familiar with the term, when you talk about civil discovery? Sure. Uh, That's depositions, uh, answering questions. Whenever somebody sues somebody else, both sides have the opportunity to discover information about the case. And they do that through sworn testimony in a deposition or exchanging documents or written answers to questions. Hank, let's talk about the community because you all talk to so many different people. What did you and your students discover about Ahmad and the community that he was from? I want to focus on him for a moment now. Well, certainly within his family, he was beloved. People had only the fondest memories of him um, uh, as a sweet fellow. Um, you know, always said, I love you when he was leaving, not just his aunt's place, but anybody in the family. Um, you know, he uh, he had been a football player and was among those who was not recruited to go off to play in college mm-hmm. and wasn't didn't make it to the pros as quite a few of his fellow Brunswick High teammates uh, mm-hmm. did. Uh, and it just, it was remarkable to me how many people turned out to to support him and to keep his memory alive. Now, he had some rough scrapes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that. Um, we played, however, I have to say, when, I, when, it, when anything that he got in trouble for, I, I'm, I'm I'm skeptical of, to be honest with you, after we saw the video of police stopping him in a park and just, I don't know, we let it run a lot in the in the podcast. It went on and yeah. on and on, and the police had nothing. They had nothing to go on. There was no warrant out for him, and they just weren't going to let him go. And the cop keeps saying, I think I see seeds, you know, in, in his car, uh, and Ahmad won't let me get in the car, so I really can't. I mean, who cares? And uh, I, I, I just felt like we were reliving Ferguson, you know, and broken taillights and, and, and things like that. Uh, but his family stood by him and believed in him, and, and, and their hearts are still very, very broken, and they're very, very angry. There is a photo of Ahmad's grandmother as she sits near his, his gravesite. Um, if you haven't seen that, it is very, very, very telling. Um, Paige, when we talk about, and here's a question from a listener, it just makes sense. Ask Paige when the trial is going to start. I mean, we are still in a pandemic, but that's actually a good question. You know, what what's going on here? Well, my understanding is um, the Supreme Court has said trials can begin as soon as next month in March. The new district attorney in Glenn County is already figuring out how he's going to impanel uh, jurors to hear trials. It's going to be very different than in the past. 
It doesn't look like the McMichael's lawyers have requested a speedy trial. They have not demanded one. Uh, I think right now they're comfortable to let the clock tick. Maybe they're learning more about the case, doing their own investigation. But uh, I would anticipate we'll probably see the case go to trial late summer, early fall, uh, barring some intervention by the judge. And Paige, you're down there. You you know you're in the heart of all this. What what's the I guess the word among the the legal community? What are the the questions or just what's that the topic that everyone is talking about in terms of we need to watch this and see what happens? Uh, take our listeners to that. Well, surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, I guess it depends on where you are in the state. But people down here, at least the people that I you know have encountered and what we've seen publicly reported in the local news are uniformly convinced that Ahmaud Arbery was murdered. Uh, There doesn't seem to be, and I think this is indicative, not necessarily indicative, but illustrated by the grand jury who met down here and indicted these folks with these very serious charges in very short order. Uh, It did not take them long to consider the case. And these are people from the local community, from the McMichaels community, from Bryant's community who know these folks. And they didn't have a problem at all seeing this as an egregious criminal act. Hank, what do you make of when all of this does get underway and and the the trial and just this where this case, you know, we've had you've have examined and done analysis on so many of these cases. But here in the 21st century, you know. You know, there's a there's a part of me that feels like it's going to be more than uh, Greg and Travis McMichael and Roddy Bryant on trial. Um, I, I don't want to overstate this, but to some extent, it's Georgia is on trial. Uh, Georgia history has favored uh, the white people uh, when it comes to these cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly if they were in law enforcement, now Greg McMichael had been in law enforcement and he certainly was treated by law enforcement and by the prosecutor in this case, as if he were still in law enforcement. Mm-hmm. But, but overall, I would say that Georgia, you know, will, will be on trial. We'll, and, and it, the world has been watching Georgia pretty close, uh, in the last several months because of our two Senate race runoffs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of people thought there was some, re- you know, redemption in that. I think that this is going to be another opportunity for Georgia to try to re- redirect its its history and its historical race, racism. Yeah, Hank and Paige, earlier I had a conversation with the Atlanta attorney and social justice activist and vice president of the NWCP chapter of Atlanta, Gerald Griggs, and you know our conversation centered around what has become a familiar action of demanding accountability and justice. And as we go to break, I just want to play a, a clip of that that interview with with Gerald, if we have it ready. Gerald, is there anything different about this movement as it relates to Ahmad and George and Brianna? I think there's definitely a difference. We have more awareness, more people are taking notice of the plight of African-Americans than ever before. You know, I talk to my my mentors in the civil rights movement and they say this movement is a lot bigger uh, than that one. And I, I respectfully tell them, I hear what you're saying, but we haven't accomplished what we need to accomplish yet. So I think the moment the moment is right. Uh, from Ahmad, which started the new revival of the social justice movement. Then it moved to Louisville, Kentucky with Breonna Taylor. 
Uh, and then, of course, eight minutes and 46 seconds we saw in Minnesota with George Floyd. And then it shifted to Atlanta with Rayshard Brooks and Vincent Truitt. And, and now we're here. And my hope is that lawmakers will have the gumption and the courage uh, to pass legislation as they're trying to do here in Georgia uh, with the repeal of citizens arrest and as with the uh, George Floyd uh, police reform bill that's in Congress and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. I'm hopeful that we can hit the same milestones that the civil rights movement hit. I'm hopeful there's more attention. Well, Gerald, let's stick with that for a moment, because when you talk about the movement, and often I ask the question about how effective is the movement to get actionable outcomes, do you make some inroads in terms of police reform? If you get a a measure like the citizen's arrest that's amended, because it hasn't totally been repealed, but here in Georgia it's going to be changed, is that how you measure then the effectiveness of the movement? No, it's not how you measure the effectiveness of the movement. The movement is the people coalescing. Mm -hmm. And we've seen uh, millions of people march in solidarity. We've seen leagues uh, come in solidarity. We've seen business organizations come in solidarity. That's how you measure the movement. But the ultimate goal is justice. And until we see Travis and Gregory McMichael and William Roddy Bryant sent to prison, until we see Derek Chafin sent to prison, until we see the officers that killed Breonna Taylor sent to prison, uh, and of course the officers that killed Garrett Rolfe and, and Devin Brosnan here in Atlanta killed Rayshard Brooks, and uh, the officer that killed Ray, uh, that killed Vincent Truitt sent to prison, the movement will continue. We have to remember the civil rights movement lasted for between 12 to 14 years. We're really in year seven of this movement. So mm-hmm. um, I just think that we are continuing to make inroads, continuing to uh, apply pressure. Uh, my hat's off to the young people that have been the lifeblood of this movement. Many of them have been named and some of them have been unnamed. But I am I am resolute in believing that we will achieve the ends of justice and you will see a new America. We saw it with uh, unprecedented voter turnout because of what happened to uh, Ahmad and what happened to George and what happened to Brianna and what happened to Ray Shard. Now it's time for our elected officials to do what we sent them to Washington and to Atlanta to do. And that's changed laws. Well, let's start then in Washington. You are encouraged with the Biden administration and their initiatives or their promises, because, you know, initiative is one thing and a promise is another. You encourage with the Biden administration uh, in terms of addressing some of these issues. No, absolutely not. Um, I appreciate the executive order, but it didn't go far enough. They need to implement the Obama 21st Century Policing Initiative, which is a solution. Uh, they need to do it now. Um, so, um, so you know, they're taking steps. I do appreciate um, the representation uh, on his cabinet level of many positions, but we need actual action. So uh, we in the activist community have uh, been dedicated to giving him 100 days of grace period. Uh, but that 100 days will be up May the 1st, and we will be back to what we've been doing um, for the last six years. And that's agitating and and activating and and advocating on behalf of these individuals whose lives have been affected by racism, systemic racism, uh, as well as police brutality. And we are calling on him to make affirmative steps with legislation. The George Floyd police reform bill is there. Uh, The John Lewis Voting Rights Act is there. Uh, The Obama 21st Century Policing Initiative is the solution to police brutality. He needs to pass these initiatives immediately, either by executive 
uh, order or by legislation, and he needs to do it in the first 100 days. Are you encouraged with Merrick Garland as the nominee for the United States Attorney General? I am. I think that he uh, brings uh, uh, an intelligence and a a legal background that could help move us forward in civil rights. So I am encouraged by his appointment. I'm also encouraged by Kristen Clark, uh, who's uh, up for nominee uh, for parts of the Justice Department. And I forget the other young lady's name, uh, but those selections are very strong and I'm hopeful. But we still need something done in the first hundred days. Gerald, as we wrap up and, you know, I went back and I looked at all of the the rallies and the protests and the marches and the individuals. Just your thoughts on the community coming together. Well, I think that we're going to have to do this the rest of our lives. You know, this country was born out of a protest and the protest is what got us the charges uh, for William uh, Roddy Bryant and the McMichaels. And we have to continue to rally. They have hearings coming up. We have to be at every hearing. They will have a trial coming up. We have to be at the trial. We have to make sure the judge and the jury understand that we loved our dear brother Ahmad and that we stand with Wanda Cooper Jones and we will continue to advocate on behalf of Ahmad till we get justice. So we will continue to, to do this until justice is fair, balanced, and equitable. Gerald Griggs is an Atlanta-based attorney, social justice activist, and vice president of the Atlanta NAACP chapter. Attorney Griggs, as always, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. Closer Look continues now here. A very special Closer Look here on 90.1 WABE. And last choice for NPR, I'm Rose Scott, joined by Hank Klibanoff and Paige Pate. And Paige, I had a listener actually just send this in and wanted to know uh, your thoughts on this. The lawyers of the three charged have specifically asked for Ahmad not to be referred to as a victim. Um, Through your lens, what's that about? Well, you know, a defense lawyer doesn't want there to be Uh, an acknowledgement by the court, by the other lawyers, by people who are testifying that there's been a crime until someone's been convicted of a crime. Um, So this is not an uncommon thing. Um, We see lawyers ask for this in murder cases, uh, rape cases, serious sexual assault cases, because once the terminology of victim starts getting used in court, before the verdict's even reached, uh, there's a tendency for people to already assume that somebody's guilty of, of committing a crime. So it's not uncommon. You know, it, it, it's a strategy that defense lawyers routinely use in cases like this. And Hank, this is not lost on you and all the research and all the cases that you have covered, researched, and analyzed. It's just not lost on you that the defense might go this round. No, the defense uh, has, you know, a big bag of tricks at once uh, and, and strategies. I don't want to diminish it. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say this. It's interesting. The uh, I can see the journalists who are going to be cover it, are covering it will refer to Ahmaud Arbery as a victim. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no simpler way to describe, you know, this. Um, and and he, he is. I mean, I think you just watch any of the video or hear any of these stories, and there's no question but that he 
he was being pursued. He was he was the subject slash victim of a manhunt. Mm-hmm. You know, Hank, in the montage coming into today's program, and we played clips from a hearing with the GBI officer, and we bleeped out the the F and the N word. I think mm-hmm. we all know what both mm-hmm. what those are. I want to get your thoughts on that, and and Paige, you can weigh in on this too in terms of uh, as a defense attorney. Using that word, when you're in a court of law, you, you use the word. People say, well, that could be incriminating because if a white person uses that word, it means they're, they're definitely racist, and that's all you have to prove. But as Paige has alluded to already, it's not about necessarily proving it was racially motivated. You prove that they killed, that they, this is what they want to prove, that Ahmad was murdered by these mm-hmm. two men. But here we are again, it goes back to race. Whether people want to admit it or not, it goes back to race with this case. And it's all going to be... In- Page would know this better than I. It's all going to be part of the the strategic plan, uh, you know, on both sides. I mean, there there was a, a one of our civil rights code cases going back to 1964 of white men who were accused of killing Lemuel Penn, uh, a lieutenant colonel who was driving from Fort Benning back to Washington D.C. where he was a school administrator, and you know there was great offense taken by white jurors that two black men who were in the car with him showed up in court when the trial finally came around wearing their Army Reserve uniforms. Mm-hmm. And that was considered, you know, a bad strategic move <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, because it it kind of thumbed their nose at white people, you know, to show that these were accomplished mm-hmm. African Americans. Mm-hmm. So it's all part of the strategy, and I'm sure if it, the, the prosecution will have as many designs as, as the defense. Hey, just talk about jury selection here. Um, you know, obviously, I don't know if you can go anywhere in the region and find someone who has not heard about this case. But what would, I guess, disqualify someone from being, you know, a potential juror in this case? Well, the, the magic word is I've reached an opinion about the case. Um, so having heard about the case in the news, having seen reports in the media, that's not enough to disqualify someone from serving on a jury. Or you're right, it'd be virtually impossible to pick a jury anywhere, uh, not just in Glen County, but anywhere. Mm-hmm. So the, the judge is going to be in, in both both sides. The lawyers will be very, um, I won't say aggressive, but but very focused on asking questions about what have you heard? Uh, what do you think about that? Have you discussed the case with friends of yours, people at work, in the church? To, to try to see what opinions people have already reached. And, and, and frankly, this is one of those cases, and I think Hank said it well, you see the video, you reach a conclusion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Didn't take the GBI long to do that either. So it's going to be very difficult to find people who truly have no opinion. Now, you may find folks that say they have no opinion because maybe they want to be on this jury uh, for a couple of different reasons. Hmm. Um, but finding a truly impartial jury is going to be a challenge here or in any county where the case may be tried. WABE legal analyst and criminal defense attorney Paige Pate as we conclude this special edition of Closer Look. Hank Klibanoff, as always, thank you so much. Professor over at Emory University, director of the Georgia Civil Rights Code Case Project. Thank you, Rich. You got a Peabody on your desk. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank also you. the author of one of the greatest books I think that every journalist should read in the race beat. Um, gentlemen, um, if you want to have some final words about your takeaway a year later, you can share them now if you want to. Paige, I'll start with you. 
Well, I think everyone here is ready for some closure to this part of, of this struggle. Uh, get this case over with. These folks are likely to be convicted. But the question is, what's next? And I don't mean just laws. I mean, culturally, I mean, systemically. Uh, we've got a long way to go, not just in Georgia, but in many places. And Hank, I'll give you the last word on that. Just to encourage the general public to always approach these with some skepticism. Uh, Not cynicism, but skepticism. Um, In in my back of my head, I keep hearing that 911 operator asking the question, can you tell me what he is doing wrong? And no one was ever able to say what Ahmaud Arbery was doing wrong. And therefore, he died not having done something wrong. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. Special thank you to our IT department and Latanya Sneed. We really appreciate it. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. as well as in our podcast. And also subscribe to Buried Truths if you haven't heard it, folks. You really, It's a really good podcast. I'm not just saying that. But subscribe to that podcast as well as Closer Look, wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.